0: Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. Maryland wasn't so merry for some Americans during the Revolutionary War, especially if you happened to side with the king. Professing fealty to the crown, for whatever reason or motivation, cost many Maryland colonists their property, if not their lives. But for other Maryland loyalists, like enslaved people, loyalism was an opportunity to achieve a different kind of American independence, or to turn ideas about class and patriarchy on their heads. Now last week, we began a two-part series look at loyalism in the Chesapeake. We began in Virginia and the potential for a digital project now in its early stages to radically complicate our understanding of loyalty in the old dominion. On today's episode, we turn north and head to Maryland to feast on crab cakes and sink our teeth into the Maryland Loyalism Project. Created by Dr. Kyle Roberts of the American Philosophical Society and Dr. Benjamin Bankhurst of Shepherd University, the Maryland Loyalism Project is a digital archive that brings together the stories of Maryland women and men who remained loyal to the crown during the American Revolution. More than just home to digitized copies of Loyalist claims, the project is a research and teaching tool about the diversity of the Maryland Loyalist experience. And to help illustrate that point, today you'll also hear from some of Roberts and Bankhurst's students about what they found digging in these records and what they make of them. So get out your Old Bay seasoning and let's digitize the Maryland Loyalist experience with Kyle Roberts and Benjamin Bankhurst. Ben, Kyle, good to see you both and thanks so much for being here. And thanks so much for bringing your students into this conversation. I'm really happy that we have the chance to feature their work in this episode and I'm I'm really looking forward to playing their clips in just a bit. Uh, as our listeners will know, just a couple of weeks ago, our friends Stephanie Walters and Alexi Garrett introduced us to Virginia loyalists in the American Revolution, and uh, you know their hopes to build a digital project that will bring their stories to a much wider audience. You've actually done this for Maryland loyalists, and we'll talk about that in just a bit. But you know, just in case folks uh, are joining us for the first time, why don't we have a Why don't we have a little general overview of the Loyalists, uh, these people that some historians used to call the losers of the American Revolution? And Ben, maybe we can start with you.
1: Ah, so who were the Loyalists? It's a thorny question, and I think it's tied to larger questions of motivation, identity, and ideology in the era of the American Revolution. The earliest scholars of loyalism, including somebody who your listeners may be familiar with, uh, Lorenzo Sabine in the 1840s, focused a great deal on what we might call ideological loyalists or those who took up arms in defense of the crown or had vested interests in preserving the imperial order. so we might think here of Anglican clerics, imperial office holders, etc. We might feel comfortable labeling these people loyalists. They, in some manner, asserted their loyalty through action. We also might feel comfortable attributing the status of a loyalist to these people because uh, many of them fled the, uh, the colony soon after independence was declared and really didn't have to wrestle with the implications of their stance in a hostile environment. More recently, however, scholars have emphasized the ways in which uh, loyalism uh, was fluid in America during the war. Christopher Minty, for instance, working on New York, has found people often switch sides uh, when convenient. You might sign a Declaration of Dependence, for instance, one of the, one of these fascinating documents that comes out of uh, occupied New York in 1776. Uh, within years, might sign on to pledges of loyalty to the revolution. We certainly see people switch sides in many contexts. I'm thinking here of General Howe's 1776 campaign in New Jersey, thousands of people come to sign oaths of loyalty to the British government. But then when Howe retreats across New Jersey, these people revert back to their their patriotism. So here we see loyalism can be opportunistic and it it really depends on the circumstances. Put it another way, it's kind of a slippery concept. And when we think about African-American experience during the war, especially the enslaved in the South, liberty is not... It's not an abstract concept for them. Uh, so when Lord Dunmore, for instance, issues a proclamation in uh, November of 1775, enticing the enslaved on the estates of, of patriot masters to flock to the, the British standard to secure their freedom, many, many jump on that opportunity. Are they ideological loyalists? Are they committed to the preservation of British order in America? Not necessarily, but yet I think we could still encompass them within this broader definition of what a loyalist is. So I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll end by saying, I, I know that's, an unsatisfactory answer. But I don't think there really is a satisfactory answer as to what a definitive loyalist may look like.
0: It's a lot more fun when the story is complicated. And and certainly, as you point out, some folks had ideological convictions, but others had to be opportunistic and make difficult choices to increase their odds of survival during a violent war. Tell us a little bit about the Loyalist experience, and, and I should note, as I, I kind of referenced at the top of the program here, you've brought some audio from your wonderful students talking about some of these Maryland Loyalists, and we'll come to those throughout our chat today. But, but Kyle, maybe you can get us started on the Loyalist experience during the war.
2: What's sort of fascinating is... Being able to resituate ourselves to the loyalist experience and realizing that the war wasn't always in one side or the other's favor. One could have a very nice experience in New York City, for example, while Mm. while the city is occupied. And if one had enough means, one could get out of the city and make their way to London, or make their way to New Brunswick, or make their way to Nova Scotia. I think the loyalist experience has to be refracted through class. I think we see that a great deal. The documents that we work with, some of the documents we work with, focus far more heavily on those people of means, also has to be refracted through race. You know, one book on Maryland loyalism from the 1980s doesn't even mention, as a category, the enslaved people on patriot plantations who fled and self-emancipated themselves as even being a category So I think that the experience of loyalism is going to be very different in different places. Ben, in his research, has focused a lot on the German experience, right, which is another sort of flavor of loyalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that comes in. And so if anyone is going to write the, the great overarching history of loyalism, there's just, there's many different stories and many different experiences that are going to come out from that. And maybe the best we can hope is a, is a history of situation that at different moments, at different times, loyalism feels in a certain way. That said, when you read what's been left to us in the narratives, uh, there is certainly a cultivated persona. I think, but we have to remember that these are often documents written for a specific audience, and there is much to be said for sort of embellishing, perhaps, <laughs> for trying to uh, expand um, the the sense of persecution. And you know, it does take a very careful historian to kind of cut through the story to understand what is fact and what is fiction.
0: Let's hear about some of those experiences now, and I want to bring in your student Claire, who can tell us a little bit about Maryland Loyalist women as they petitioned the British government for financial compensation, and who it sounds like well understood their 18th century audience when they were composing these documents.
3: Hello, I'm Claire Tryon. I'm the Americorps Curate and Archival Assistant at Arthur Dale Heritage. Over the summer of 2019, I served as the content editor and Lapis Digital Initiatives intern for the Maryland Loyalism Project. Today, I'm going to be talking to you about women and their relationship to loyalism. A majority of the claims in the Maryland Loyalist Papers are by men. In the volume that we focused on for the Shepherd University and Loyola University Chicago class, there were only two claims made by women, and that's two out of 25. These two women were Susanna Marshall and Elizabeth Allen. When deciding how I wanted to talk about women and loyalism during the American Revolution, I immediately thought of Susanna Marshall and another woman, Elizabeth Delaney, who is mentioned in another volume. Their stories together illustrate the barriers in place for women loyalists. From her account to the Claims Commission, we know that Susanna Marshall was of a lower class status than many of the other loyalists, especially the other female loyalists. She worked as a tavern keeper alongside her husband, William Marshall, who I believe was her second or third husband. In Susanna Marshall's memorial, she utilizes her position as a wife and mother to make her claim, as well as makes more elaborate claims of loyalty. These aspects are common among claims made by women. In Susanna's claim, it states that she, quote, insisted that her husband should take up arms in defense of the country, which he absolutely refused, end quote. What this says to me as a reader is that Susanna is demonstrating that she was an active loyalist by using her position and influence as a wife to convince her husband to join the British. In addition to demonstrating her personal loyalty, Susanna also provides herself and her family with an alibi for their inaction, that the marshal's passivity when confronted by the rising of American hostility in 1774 was her husband William's decision and places the blame upon him, who, at this point, he was deceased. Susanna also claims that William Marshall abandoned his family in a hostile environment because he was not willing to rebel against his country. She goes on to elaborate that his departure put Susanna and her children in a vulnerable state. Ultimately, she claims that she fled America for fear of violence against her and her children. This cast her as a loving and protective mother, making the necessary and sometimes extreme sacrifices for her children. The difficulties women had when making claims transcend class. Elizabeth Delaney married into a wealthy landowning family. Elizabeth claims that due to her husband, Lloyd Delaney's death, She was entitled to be compensated for the loss of his property, which included two estates and a house in Annapolis. Her total claim amounts to 2,065 pounds. This number is only half of what she calculated as the total worth of his assets. Like Susanna, Elizabeth states that her husband's death was a result of his loyalism to Great Britain. Yet, unlike Susanna Marshall, Elizabeth was confronted by individuals, men, opposing her claim. According to her first witness, Reverend Montgomery, the estate passes from Lloyd Delaney to his brother Daniel. This was stated in the will of Lloyd and Daniel's father. Daniel Delaney's gender gives him priority regardless of Elizabeth's class situation or position as a widow. While being compensated by the Claims Commission was an arduous process, it was especially difficult for women. The patriarchal culture and sexism within the system of the Loyalist Claims Commission shaped the ways in which Susanna Marshall and Elizabeth Delaney structured their claims before the Loyalist Claims Commission. Anna Marshall capitalized on traditional gender roles to make her claim more palpable for the commission. Elizabeth attempted to appeal to the commission's sympathy as she was a member of a similar social economic status.
0: So Claire and the rest of your students whom we'll hear from in just a bit did research in primary sources to tell stories about these Maryland loyalists. And as a kind of a warm-up to talking about these sources themselves, why did you decide to focus your energy on Maryland in the first place?
1: You know, if I had to chalk it up to three reasons. First and foremost, it fit the needs of the class that Kyle and I were teaching at the time that we began this project we needed a manageable source base. And we'll, we'll come to our sources in a second. Needless to say, within this, this large collection of sources bequeathed to us by the Loyalist Claims Commission in London, the volumes dedicated to Maryland were fewer than would be the case in, in colonies like Virginia or, or New York. So we could really get our heads around it and our students could uh, get their heads around that, that base as well. Uh, secondly, Maryland is underrepresented in the historiography of loyalism. Let's face it, when we think about Chesapeake loyalism, we think about Virginia. The most recent article on the topic of of loyalism in the Upper South entitled Chesapeake Loyalism did not take into consideration Maryland at all. For that reason, we thought this is something new. We could say something new about these people that hasn't been said before. Uh, So that would be uh, one of the reasons we chose Maryland. And finally, we chose Maryland because of my proximity to the state. I mean, I'm not actually in Maryland, but I'm as close as you can be within the state of West Virginia to Maryland. Uh, My university is on the banks of the Potomac River, and a large proportion of our students hail from Western Maryland. There was, a, there was an interest among, uh, among our students for this topic. That's, in a nutshell, why we chose
3: Maryland.
2: I was thinking, you know, the other part of what's really important is the diversity of experiences in Maryland. Maryland itself is a uh, diverse geographic landscape. What happens in the western part of the state is a different experience than what's happening in the plantations on the eastern shore. And the migration patterns in the state are different, and they bring different groups of people together. So it feels in many ways that Maryland offers, uh, in a way that it it has in American history, a site that's southern, but also reflective of the mid-Atlantic streams. And for when you're teaching a course... You know, you wanna be able to offer students a range of different types of experiences, right? You don't wanna just give them the example that confirms either the stereotype they came into the class with or that fuels or that or that they leave the class just thinking in a very narrow way. It felt that and Ben I really provide the lead on this and, and, and making us think. We had been thinking about South Carolina uh, the mm-hmm. first time we taught the course, but Maryland and for the reasons that Ben laid out seemed to make more sense and, and seemed to work even a little bit better for, for our teaching aims.
0: Let's dive into the Loyalist Claims Commission and the documents it generated in just a second. But first, let's bring in another student of yours, Matthew, who can tell us about the Loyalists at War in Western Maryland.
4: Hello, my name is Matthew Line, and I study history at Hagerstown Community College. Big history project that I'm working on is actually regarding the loyalists in the American Revolutionary War. I have a great passion for finding the voices of those who are who have been tampered down by by the the victors and the aggressive ones throughout history. So. I wanted to come to uh, Maryland loyalists um, in that time. And it seems like a lot of the studies uh, of Maryland loyalism focus on what was happening like along the bay, uh, along the eastern shore. But loyalists were certainly active in the West. John Ferdinand Dauziel Smith was a man that joined the British forces early in the conflict in 1774. He was, according to his memorial, he was... He may have been one of the very first colonists to join with the British. His memorial was sent to the Claims Commission in London after the war. It's also available for for public viewing on the Maryland Loyalism Project website. He traveled with Lieutenant John Connolly, the once commander of Fort Pitt, and as he traveled through Western Maryland on his way to rally supporters to the British cause on the frontier. Uh, Smith uh, was a Maryland man himself. He owned land in, in many places, but Charles County was one of the main ones at the time. In the fall of 1775, Connolly and Smith were on a mission to deliver Patriot war plans to Lord Dunmore and actually amass an army um, to march back to the Chesapeake and and cut off trade between the Northern and Southern colonies. Um, His trip was unfortunately cut short when he reached uh, Hagerstown, which was at that point Elizabethtown, uh, where they were recognized by a Patriot who actually knew of John Connolly. After being detained in Hagerstown, he was taken by his account rather rudely, to a Frederick prison designed to house British prisoners of war and and loyalists. He actually managed to escape this imprisonment and appeared to continue his mission to the Ohio Valley, but was once again caught. This time in a place called Little Meadows, which is near Frostburg, Maryland. After this, he was dragged back 700 miles, according to him, back to Frederick and then to Baltimore, where he was able to escape once again. After his escape, he somehow commandeered a boat and sailed it 18 miles into the Atlantic Ocean to a larger British vessel, where he was kindly taken aboard and granted the title of Captain of the Queen's Rangers in America. With this title, he fought at the Battle of Germantown and headed north to Philadelphia, where he would continue to recruit loyalists to the British cause. Had John Connolly and John Smith achieved their mission, the outcome of the war may have been very different, especially if the loyalists he recruited were half as determined as he was.
0: You know, I talked with Stephanie Walters and Alexa Garrett about the Loyalist Claims in our Virginia-centric episode, but these documents are so critical to this history that I think it's worth talking about them again just briefly. So, Ben, would you mind talking us through the British government body known as the Loyalist Claims Commission? And then, Kyle, perhaps you would read us in on what these Loyalist Claims were.
1: So in a nutshell, uh, in the midst of fighting the war, the British government realized that they were facing a refugee crisis. London in particular became the epicenter of uh, of these sort of diasporic communities of loyalists from all the, uh, all the colonies who had fled America at the offset of the revolution uh, and were petitioning the British government for redress, for lost property in particular. Initially, the compensation to, to these refugees was uh, sort of a bit hodgepodge, uh, run out of the treasury. Uh, but when, after Yorktown in particular, and the dawning realization that these this is not a temporary problem, that actually these the, the British government had to find a more permanent solution to the loyalist dilemma, a parliamentary commission was established to oversee the compensation of loyalist refugees, both in the British Isles and in Canada. Uh, so thousands of, uh, of loyalists, attended the Loyalist Claims Commission for redress. Uh, And if I could, I I kind of want to talk you through what these documents look like. Mm -hmm. There are two sets of documents housed in the National Archives of of the United Kingdom. One is the sort of official record of the Loyalist Claims Commission. It's where all of the paperwork submitted by the various refugees was compiled, uh, transcribed by a parliamentary clerk. That's the resource that we use for our projects. There's another large swath of records uh, which are basically folders or, or, or of, of material submitted by the refugees themselves. Uh, we decided in our over the course of our project that we wouldn't deal with that source base. One of the activities that our students were engaged in was transcription. And we thought, you know, we don't want to, we don't, you know, and dealing with law, dealing with parliamentary clerks is one thing, but throwing mm-hmm. undergraduates into the world of hastily written letters uh, from you know, random merchants, and that was another. The records of the commission are, are fairly formulaic. A claimant would go before the Loyalist Commission. They would present a memorial, which was a ba- basically their testimony, saying that this is how I had suffered for, uh, for the, the cause of the crown in America. They would then submit a, a, a schedule of losses, a claim, detailing their lost property. And finally, they would uh, produce witness statements attesting to their loyalty uh, in America. I think we can think about the process of petitioning the Claims Commission as, as sort of a trial and a, an insurance. Uh, the defendant here, the uh, the loyalist, would submit an insurance claim before the commission. They had to prove a few things. One, that they were a dedicated loyalist. If they had served in the military, this was this was usually the highest mark of, of loyalty. And the commission put an emphasis on that aspect of the loyalist experience. Secondly, they would sort of embellish their, their suffering as a way of creating an emotional Argument for why they deserved compensation. Claims commission would then judge the individual loyalist claim and assign a recommended allowance to that loyalist. It was very, and I should stress here, it was very rare for a loyalist to get the entirety of their claim, and they knew that going into it, which which often led them to embellish their losses a bit as well.
2: These documents range from three to fifty-five or sixty pages long. There are about seventy-three. Uh, memorials for Marylanders that are spread out uh, over five volumes. In our class, I think we assign maybe a dozen to eighteen, uh, and ask the students to work on them in pairs. And you know, we we tried to pull out different types of experiences. Uh, some memorials are individual people; others are companies. Uh, you know, kind of boards of directors for an iron furnace. Uh, or a merchant shipping house. There are five women represented among the 73 Marylanders, but even their narratives are a little little complicated. So we asked the students to transcribe these documents. So the students discovered as they're doing this transcription that it isn't just about the memorialist who's named, uh, which Ben has just sort of shared their experience, uh, it isn't just about the witnesses that are called, although that becomes the fascinating part that starts to reveal networks, but it's also about these hundreds, if not thousands of other people who are mentioned uh, throughout. And as the students were working and, you know, we're as they're transcribing, we're asking them, OK, so just make lists, you know, start to just make lists of the people that you see in this world. Uh, and one one group of students was able to say, all right, well, James Chalmers lists under his personal estate, 15 Negroes, uh, Ben, Plymouth, James, Alfred, Bob, Sam, Tom, Queen, Iphigenia, Christian, Sarah, Monomia, Hannah, Renee and Judah. And other students were pointing out, wait we just have them listed as 95 people. There are no names that are in here. And in this work, we discovered that actually James Chalmers was the only person who named the enslaved people that he had owned in Maryland. So as we're thinking about this project, we started to realize that as historians, we can't just put up a transcription of an image and leave it at that. And it can't just be the story. Of the person who had the means to make the claim because we have to remember you had to have means if you weren't in london or halifax on the days when the commissioners are there you're not going to necessarily tell your story and so what i think really started to happen in this process is we started out of this to start to expand our understanding of who is a loyalist and what other sources should we use and the project itself began to evolve. And that's when we turned over to another set of documents, um, which is the Inspection role of Negroes, or the more colloquially known as the Book of Negroes, as another source uh, for understanding the Loyalist experience. And I think it's a source that Ben and I feel scholars kind of go to one or the other. You know, you, you write your book about the Inspection role, or you write your book out of the LCC, but you're not necessarily always putting the two of them into dialogue. And there's, you know, there are two very different types of sources. Ben has described this very voluminous uh, story of white loyalism. The story of Black loyalism is a recording and a spreadsheet. You know, it is eight columns of data. And that's not to say that that the words that are recorded on this page are not hugely important and hugely revealing, but the imbalance requires a different set of work. And we found that while in the classroom, We weren't able necessarily to get uh, to the inspection rule work. The interns that we've had since then have dived
1: into that source and found even more fruitful outcomes from working with it. As scholars of the 18th century, we've come across enslavement our entire careers, uh, and what was striking about letting the students loose in the LCC material and what dawned on me later is that this is one of the few documents that they have ever really dealt with on a deep level in which, you know, because they were transcribing, they're doing some really close reading on these documents. And they were the ones who just brought to our attention the fact that, you know, some of these, in some of these instances, these loyalists who we've kind of, you know, when we did the memorial, we, we've we developed this emotional commitment, you know, sort of uh, connection to. Uh, they're listing the names of their horses but not the names of the enslaved on their estates and you can see you know th- this is one of the most rewarding aspects of this project so far is that this the students are demanding more of this material they they want to invest so the humanity in these in in these schedule of claims they want to identify uh, who these people are and of course unfortunately beyond James Chalmers we have no way of identifying within those documents the the enslaved property and Loyalist Estates. And that led us to a second, uh, a sort of a second iteration of the project over the course of this summer. Right before the lockdown, I was able to go down to the Maryland State Archives. Uh, and Lo- Owen Laurie, who's, who's uh, one of the archives down there, was very helpful in this. Uh, a couple of my students and I photographed the confiscation records for the state of Maryland. And within that context, the students were able to identify the fact that in those records, many of the enslaved that are represented in the LCC records are named as they face auction at the hands of the the Maryland legislature. Uh, So a future iteration of this project, and perhaps we're getting ahead of ourselves here, is uh, one in which our students compare the confiscation records at, at, at the at the local level with the LCC material. And we can go through the process of attributing names to the lists of enslaved property covered in the LCC records. And uh, I, I'm excited about this because I think it'll be an incredibly powerful moment uh, in, in the classroom.
0: You're absolutely right about confiscation records. I've used them myself in a couple of instances, uh, particularly when I was working on a, a loyalist case in South Carolina. I mean, these things offer fascinating insights into loyalist lives in this period, including, as you say, the names of the enslaved people that you're just not going to get in a loyalist claim, which helps achieve that balance of perspective that we've been talking about. So why don't we bring in another student here, Jillian, who's going to tell us a little bit more about using confiscation records to uncover the names of the enslaved people.
5: My name is Jillian Curran, and I'm a junior at Washington College. I was the 2020 Explore America summer intern through the CV Star Center in the American Philosophical Society. The Principio Company was a large ironworks company that had been operating in Maryland since 1720. We first encountered the company in our research through a memorial submitted to Parliament by its owners, William Pellet, Charles Wright, Osgood Gee, and Peter Cowmel. In the memorial, they were seeking compensation for 95 people enslaved by the company at the furnaces and forges that they had lost during the course of the war. As was typical in the memorials submitted by loyalists, none of those enslaved persons were given names or any sort of identifier. They were simply listed quantitatively alongside livestock and equipment. This dehumanization of enslaved persons was something we wanted to try and rectify almost 250 years later, especially since we would be including the enslaved as entities in our online archive and we wanted to be able to identify them by more than just an arbitrary number. The opportunity to restore that personhood missing in the Claims Commission papers came when we looked at the confiscation records from the American government for the Principio Company. In these records, we were amazed to see that all 99 enslaved persons confiscated from the Principio Company were listed by name and even had some notes about familial relationships and ages. We were then able to match those names to the ambiguous number 95 provided by the Principio Company, providing a much more vivid picture. It turned out that the Principio Company enslaved 26 men, 14 women, 35 children, and 24 others who were not given a definite age or gender, who were confiscated and resold into slavery by the American government at three auctions between 1781 and 1782. This phase of our research essentially took a simple number and revealed the stories of 99 living, breathing individuals who deserve to be remembered with dignity and respect. Learning their names was just the exciting first step in doing just that.
0: I had thought that you developed this digital project first and then taught courses on it. Turns out I had it all backwards. So so how did you get started?
2: Ben and I uh, were teaching at uh, two different universities, I in Chicago and Ben in uh, Shepherdstown, West Virginia. We had met, how long ago now? (laughs) Over a decade. uh, when We were both in London. And one of the realizations we had in teaching at big universities was that there weren't a lot of opportunities for team teaching within the institution itself. If I had wanted to do that at Loyola, the dean would say, okay, you find 30 people to fill your class, and your colleague should find 40 people to fill her class, and then you can have 70 people in an advanced seminar. The way around it was to say, actually, well, I could have 18 people in my seminar, and Ben can have 18 people at another institution. So we decided, okay, let's let's work together. Let's teach. We, we both knew we were going to teach a course in the American Revolution. Let's bring our students together. I can say that Catholic school kids in Chicago have not really spent much time interacting with public school kids in West Virginia. Really an opportunity to kind of do that necessary work that I think we see more broadly of bringing different populations together. You know, one very liberal bubble... I remember that uh, there was some elections happening with with one of the classes uh, and Ben's, uh, some of Ben's students skewed much more conservative. But being able to have a common topic, the American Revolution, uh, being able to teach this course together and being able to work on a project together, which is really where the Loyalist Project came out of, ended up feeling like a really good fit. Well, at least I, I felt that way. I hope you agree, Ben.
1: Oh, absolutely. The, uh, the class did really spawn some friendships amongst our, our, our students. A couple of them have ended up in North Carolina and are friends to this day uh, from the first iteration of the course in 2017. So it was a really worthwhile endeavor and one I'm eager to do. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm sad, actually, that Kyle's uh, in some respects at the American Philosophical Society now because it, 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 it means that we won't have the opportunity to, to do it uh, in the future. On another point there, how do we carve out this project within that class? Um, one of, and Kyle really had this idea, uh, when it came to creating uh, groups that straddled the country. So we'd have two, uh, two students from Chicago, two students from West Virginia within one group. We thought, how, how can we make this work. Uh, And what we decided to do was to assign them a historical family through which they would interpret the events of the American Revolution. And in so doing, I chose one family that was crucial, was key to my my previous research, which were the Chesneys of South Carolina. Uh, And since we had uh, some of the Loyals Claims Commission papers that I had photographed in London available to us for the Chesney family. We let that, that, that group loose on those records, and they really enjoyed it. They felt this sort of vested interest in the wartime experience of this family, and they really enjoyed the process of transcription and interpreting uh, the material. So in, the next time we, we organized the class, we had an assignment geared around adopting a Loyalist refugee in which we had the students look at some of the primary sources from, from different colonies related to Loyalism. And that was the most popular of our assignments that year. And so we decided, well, we, this has legs. Let's, let's think of a project here that we could sort of flesh out and uh, follow further.
0: Well, I'd love to have the syllabi for both versions of the course. And I, I, wish I, I wish I was in those classes myself. They sound fantastic. Can you walk us through the digital project itself? How are you presenting the manuscripts you've imaged and the information you've gleaned from them? You've mentioned transcriptions, but let's have a holistic view of it.
2: I'll start uh, kind of by describing how the project uh, looks and how it's sort of evolved. Uh, and then Ben, I think, you know, can probably speak to the types of research we, and use, we hope, up from it. You talked, Jim, quite well about the balance between white and black loyalism. The other balance that we have to think about in designing a digital project today is between the 18th century document and the 21st century user. And I know that's uh, something you've wrestled with in your own digital work, nobody from the 18th century is going to come back and look at our digital project. They're gone. That's part of the reason I like studying the 18th century. They're not going to come back and tell me I got it wrong. 21st century users have different expectations of what they need. So we wrestled a lot, and we talked to our students a lot. Uh, this is a project that was also sponsored um, by the Center for Textual Studies and Digi- uh, Textual Studies and Digital Humanities at Loyola University. Uh, that was funded very generously by a grant from the Omahundro Institute under the Lapitas Digital Collections Initiative, and that allowed us to bring graduate students in to think about, well, how do we mediate between these two times? And we have on the one hand. Uh, images of the original manuscript. On the other, we have the need to access those images. So we started, all right, well, we knew we needed a digital archive. And the uh, Lapidus money allowed us to get the United, uh, United Kingdom National Archives to re-photograph the original manuscripts. The photos that Ben had taken sometimes had his thumb in them. I teased Ben about that. We, oh, here we go. Yep. The Most historians have only been able to use the LCC materials on microfilm. And those microfilms are often degraded if you're at a collection like the David Library, where they've been used by many others. So we have these beautiful archival TIFFs and derivative JPEGs. We knew we wanted to make a digital archive. So we use Scalar, which is a pretty popular do-it-yourself site to host each of the images. And we've organized it by the manuscript. So our thinking here is a little scholarly, right? We're thinking that, Jim, you might want to look and see the volume, and you might be a skeptical skeptical historian, and you you want to make sure we didn't miss anything. So we organized it that way. Uh, We realized that most users probably can't read 18th century cursive handwriting. So everything that's in there is or will be transcribed. So you can go in, you can look at the memorial, you can look at an individual page, and then you can look at the transcription. The memorials are organized in that tripartite fashion, you know, the narrative, the claims, and then the witnesses. But Scalar's not really great for searching. And there are so many names in this, we figured, okay, what's a better platform? What's a real database platform? And so we used Omeka S, right? So Omeka's newest incarnation is a much more robust uh, database based on tabular data. So Omeka S is the database that we hope actually people will use. We hope people will go to that, type in the name of the people they're interested in finding, and it automatically links them over to Scalar to the pages on which those people are listed. We hope once they're there, they're going to get sucked into the manuscript, they'll be able to navigate through, but they'll always be able to get back to the Omeka database, you know, to find that next query. The beauty of Omeka is, because it's also a relational database, you can see how many Samuel Burke certificates were signed off for Marylanders, right? So a Birch certificate was, uh, General Birch was a British Army officer who was in charge of basically validating or credentialing an African-American formerly enslaved person had served for the British Army for at least a year, right? That was the sort of threshold to prove that they had earned their liberty. Within that, our hope is that you use the Omeka database. You find these connections. You might start thinking about the networks that are there. You go back to the Scalar database where you see the original document. We've used a very traditional form of transcription. We transcribe what we see. And so we need. We realize, and we were talking about this actually yesterday, we need a glossary because nobody knows what the hog's head is anymore. And the site will continue to evolve. Serving those two functions I would say, and this is where I, as a public historian, want this to go. I also want this to be a site where people share their own experience. Descendant communities are an important audience for this. You know, we want people to be able to go in and share the materials they might have in their private archives, the oral histories that have come down. Part of the reason to focus on Maryland is to keep it contained. You know, tell a story of a community, uh, whereas, you know, instead of doing this maybe for all the LCC and all the inspection world materials. Ben,
1: what are you kind of excited for people to do with this there's so many directions that since we began the project, where we could, where we can go with it. Firstly, you know, there's there's one issue that that Kyle mentioned uh, earlier on regarding regarding the Omeka site. We had also imagined that we our, our students would write biographies of these these loyalists based upon the materials that they're able to find. Uh, And I have to give a shout out to uh, the University of New Brunswick and their Loyalist uh, Lives Project, who have used sort of timelines and um, story maps to be able to tell the the stories of individual loyalists in a very visually stimulating way. And they've really set the bar high for us here. Uh, But what we had done in the class is to ask students to write a biography based upon the materials that they had found in the LCC. Now, this became more complicated when when we came to the inspection roles. And one of the things we're currently wrestling with is how to make up that discrepancy between black and white loyalism based upon the fact that what we have for for at least within our source base for the black loyalists are the one line that you'll find in the inspection role. How how can we then uh, craft a meaningful biography out of that that one line? Uh, so we're currently exploring ways to tell a more thematic Sort of biography to to get the students to think about the experience of enslavement in different areas of Maryland, and then to perhaps lo- locate their loyalists within that larger context and talk and and talk about that within the, the scope of the biography. But also to engage with different different students, namely uh, students in uh, American studies or, or literature classes, uh, who can help us uh, craft these biographies in a way that doesn't privilege. The white loyalist above the black loyalist simply because there's more biographical material contained within the LCC records, the Loyalist Claims Commission records. In terms of audiences, we're hoping to reach out to obviously, students are are our primary one as we continue to expand the database. But uh, we've all, we've had uh, significant uh, inroads with the descendant communities of white loyalists in particular who've reached out to us and who've uh, who've shared news about this project broadly within their networks. I think the the next step here uh is to really go out on uh you know a pr tour to try to drum up local interest in the project in maryland itself Uh, and we're currently investigating ways to do that that's the next stage and and to a point about the scope for the future (laughs) now Kyle and I when we began this project, perhaps we were oper- we, there were delusions of grandeur here. We thought we hoped that this might lead to the expansion uh, of the project to the complete digitization of LCC material and perhaps that may still happen. But one thing that we recognize as we delved in deeper is that, we, you know, there's so much, so much material in Maryland itself that perhaps that's the tact we should take. We should stay local and really flesh out this network. And perhaps, you know, I mean, this is not just uh, a story of Maryland loyalism anymore. It's the worlds of Maryland loyalism as we try to tell the story of enslaved peoples who had been confiscated on loyal estates, um, and their experiences after the war as we try to map them through probate records, for instance. This is no longer necessarily a story of loyalism as an identity, but loyalism as a, as a moment, right? That facilitated change in that community. We're in a very creative and exciting place at the moment with, with the database.
2: One thing I just would add is, Ben, you know, Jim, you had been asking where the project came from. And I think the project needs to stay true to those roots. It needs to stay a place where Ben's students and then the interns that I get at the APS have the opportunity to explore, to learn new digital approaches, to do new types of research. And I, I think we see what we want to launch this to the public so that people can see it. I think we see sort of 2026, the 250th anniversary or uh, 2033, the 250th anniversary of the Treaty of Paris, as those, uh, as where, if we were looking for any sort of completion, where we would be heading towards, you know, rushing through and getting everything done means that Ben in the spring won't have something for his students to work on. Uh, It won't mean that when the great people at Washington College, the CV Star Center, call up the APS and say, you know, we have an intern we'd like to send up, but there won't be something for that person to do. And it's, you know, that long game is a little different, right, for us as Digital humanists, right? We're usually used to having the grant, and the grant runs out, there's no more resources to do. Keeping it low, keeping it flex, you know, keeping it sort of a, you know, maybe a sort of low intensity, very flexible project. Our hope is that it allows students to continue doing this. One thing I had mentioned to mention earlier is that every student who, anybody who contributes to this, gets an authorship credit. So when you go to the transcription page, you'll see who did that transcription. And that's really important for us, right? Digital labor is so often effaced or ignored and for us it's just really important that people see the work that went into it and know who's who's the person that you know that did that work so I'm pretty excited I plan on being at the APS for quite some time Ben's going up for tenure this year they'd be Shepherd would be fools not to tenure him so you know I, I'm hoping that there is a long history you know a long future here I'm also hoping uh, and Ben has started this that we get more community partners Folks who are listening to this podcast, if this is of interest, if you want to try your hand at transcription, uh, if you want to use this data in some sort of way, you know, if you want to do some textual analysis, you want to do some mapping, let us know. You know we're educators. We're here to work with anybody who wants to, to work with us.
0: Well, you anticipated about five or six additional questions that I had about the project's duration and your investment in it. You know, so many of these projects are structured as three-year deals because they're tied to grant funding that you often feel pressured to bring it to some form of finality and then move on. But as you've said, and we all three of us know well, it takes a lot of time to do these things right. And if you run a sprint, there's just not going to be opportunities for people like your students to join you in the marathon, you know, or for that matter, the descendant communities you've been talking about. And that angle is really lost on us here in the U.S., I think. But in Canada, of course, especially in eastern Canada, where a lot of loyalists went after the war, it's a fundamentally important part of local and regional history to say nothing of the African-American communities who evacuated to Nova Scotia and later, and later some of them resettled in Sierra Leone. As we're coming to the end of our time together, I want to make sure that people know how to find the Maryland Loyalism Project. But I was also hoping you might say something about what it has been like to collaborate and teach in a digital environment. In this COVID era, right, a lot of our colleagues have had to do that in recent months, and who knows how long it'll continue to go on. But I'm interested to know if you have any advice for our friends out there who have and will continue to confront this challenge in the near future.
2: So I'll go on the sort of what what does one do in in this time of COVID? Um, reach out to projects that impress you, colored convention project, our project, if it impresses you. The, there's an Enslaved Lives project at MSU that's coming up through the ranks. You know, talk to people who have been doing this this work and see is there a way that it could be incorporated into your class? Uh, one of the things that we've very much thought about from the start, and Ben previously on his uh, his work with the Copac project and mine on judgment libraries. There's always more work to be done. than, than what we can do in the classroom. And we're always thinking about the way in which you can create modules. So reach out to somebody and say, you know, I love your project. I don't know where to begin. Is there something that would be kind of, you know, interesting that would open up some questions? And it might be a transcription project. It might be, you know, a very simple mapping project. Voyant, which is a textual analysis tool, is actually quite simple to use. We will share with you, Jim, and hopefully you can kind of post with this to the website for our class. We try to put up there all the assignments we had assigned. And so look at those. Look at the instructions in there. It's scary. The first time you do it, you don't want to fall on your face in front of your students. You don't want to be embarrassed. When I was directing the Center for Textual Studies and Digital Humanities at Loyola, I got that constantly from faculty. They want to do these things, but they don't know where to start. So just start low. Try one thing. It doesn't have to be your own brand new project. It can be somebody else's. But do know that the DH community Especially in those interested in digital humanities pedagogy, are
1: some of the most supportive and generous people that I have met. Yeah, I could. Uh, I'd like to jump on a, a few points raised by Kyle. There, um, you know, I, sometimes I, 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 and I have to confess, I was, a, I was a bit worried about this when we began. But through my involvement in a COPLAC, which is the Council of Public Liberal Arts Colleges uh, Mellon Grant called COPLAC Digital, I, I, I became, you know, I, I started this as sort of a luddite, um, but. One, one thing that that grant opportunity made me realize is that I don't, I don't necessarily need the support of a digital lab on campus, for instance, to be able to run these classes. I think we're, as these times have shown us, using programs like Zoom, for instance, uh, or Microsoft Teams or any other, um, of these web conferencing, uh, sort of programs, uh, is, is intuitive. And, uh, and I think we're all acclimating to this world and we should really, in some instances, really just embrace the opportunities inherent in that to teach across borders. As I think, as as Kyle has has moved into his new appointment, I've been thinking my students got so much out of their interactions with the Loyola students. So where where can I turn to now? And. I'm, I'm thinking of international collaborations, right, where we might be able to team teach across, uh, across the Atlantic Ocean. How wonderful would that be to teach an American Revolution class uh, within the context of a sort of a virtual classroom that spans uh, the ocean? So I, I would just say jump in and know that, the, that you can be perfectly honest with your students that you will Fall on your face sometimes. And that, you know, you don't have to, the, the output of a class like that doesn't necessarily have to be something like the Maryland Royals and project. We, we came to this after years, team teaching, uh, that in the first instance, it, it could be, it's the, the importance of these sorts of collaborations is to expose students to different skill sets. Right. Not necessarily to create a digital project that stands the test of time. Actually, you know, I'd open it up and say if anybody's interested in uh, picking our brains about what we've done, uh, we'd be happy to uh, give you, Jim, uh, our email uh, addresses and to encourage uh, solicitation from those who might be interested in replicating this. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs)
0: I think that's excellent advice, and I'm happy to direct anybody your way. Let's close this out by bringing in your final student, Michael, to tell us about Black Maryland loyalists and what made the year 1777 so significant for them.
6: My name is Michael Mastriani, and I graduated from Shepherd University in 2020 and I was a digital history intern for the Maryland Loyalism Project in 2019. I completed my senior capstone on Black Loyalists in Maryland. The project identified 54 people from Maryland within the inspection roles of Black Loyalists created by the British Army in New York at the end of the war. The purpose of these roles was to record the value of Black Loyalists in the event that Great Britain would have to pay compensation to Americans for the loss of enslaved property. In my research, I hope to paint a picture of the Maryland Black Loyalist experience. Where in Maryland were these people from? When did they seek their freedom? As I conducted my research, two spikes in the data I found led to answers. First, it appeared that 13 of the 54 Black loyalists, about 24%, came from Cecil County and more interestingly, the head of Elk which is in present-day Elkton, Maryland. This spike was interesting in itself, but I was unsure at first as to why so many men and women from these areas became Loyalists. It was not until looking at dates of freedom was obtained did this connection come into focus. We see our largest spike in 1777 when all 13 of the Black Loyalists from Cecil County and Elkton gained their freedom. Realizing this, I sought to find a reason. The British Army under Howe landed in what he called the Head of Elk in Cecil County in 1777, en route to capture Philadelphia. The landing of the British military presented an opportunity for Black Loyalists in the area to gain their freedom. Loyalism for them was an opportunistic moment, and Howe's fleet, perhaps unintentionally, served as an emancipatory force. Listeners can view the records of these 54 Marylanders on the Maryland Loyalism Project site.
0: Ben, Kyle, thanks so much for joining us. And, and thanks in particular to your students. I'm, I'm really glad that we could, we could include them in this episode. This, is, uh, this has been a lot of fun.
2: Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Jim.
0: Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Busky, with editorial assistance from Jeanette Patrick and support from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our music is Witch's Brew by C.K. Martin. Be sure to rate and subscribe to Conversations wherever you get your favorite podcasts. To find out more, please check us out at georgewashingtonpodcast.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.